A uh, couple things. Put that 15K slide up there. Um, you were, if you were around here at all before Christmas, even after, we uh, uh, were asking you and uh, to raise. We we're trying to raise $15,000 extra above what we've already designated in our budget of 15000 of money to give away during this next calendar year, 2014. Um, oh, probably at least 30, 35 of, of you families gave to that, and we reached the 15000 which is a good thing, right? Good thing. So, uh, so now we have, we have $30,000 this year to give away, and we've already established a few what we're calling strategic partners. Uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center, Backstreet Mission, the Positive Link, the um, place that services people with uh, HIV and AIDS in Bloomington, and then a couple international ones, the uh, Mexico uh, Seminary that some people at Exodus went to recently on a trip, and then uh, what's the first? Rajesh, the guy from India who was here. If you were here, it was like in December he was here. So right now we're establishing those as kind of some strategic partners, and we'll be other we'll have other money we'll be giving away as well. So. But again, one of the things we say at Exodus is we define our success by our capacity to give away, not accumulate. So not just money, but your time and energy and everything else. So thank you for those who gave to that, and uh, we're looking forward to ways to continue to increase our success in terms of how we can give away, give away, give away, give away in the spirit of Jesus, all right? So thank you on that. Um, we were going to actually have uh, Amy, uh, Amy Hayes, who works for Positive Link, one of their client representatives. I was going to interview her today about uh, what they do, but she has the flu, so she'll be here in a couple weeks. Next week, you'll be hearing from Dan and the others who went on the Mexico trip to the seminary, so you'll hear more about that next week. So just, uh, again, we're always trying to keep in mind about what, the, we don't exist, the church does, we don't exist for us, we exist for the world, we exist for others, we exist to give, our, give ourselves away. That's what Jesus said, you give yourself away, you give your life away, all right? Um, I want to highlight again, too, the Celebrate Recovery, if you're interested at all, going to that movie on Tuesday night, uh, there's no obligation. They're not going to lock the doors behind you. They're not going to force you to confess sin or anything during the movie. Um, but encourage you, even if you're just going to go for the sake of entertainment, um, encourage you to do that. So let me pray, and then we'll look into God's word today. God, thank you that, uh, thank you, that you exist and that you are great. And we don't just gather every week out of some kind of a sociological habit or some kind of behaviorist uh, expectation, but we do, ultimately, every one of us here, ultimately, because we want to hear from you. We want to experience you. We want to touch you and be touched by you because we have this uh, gut sense inside of us that only you, only your spirit, um, will give us the power and the life that we've all wanted. And so we want to hear from you. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, whatever your spirit wants us to hear or see. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, here's a big dilemma in life. Let's put it on the screen here. Which way does the toilet paper roll roll? Hey, no opinions yet. All right. Does it go over or go under? Now, the re reason I'm doing this, when I was engaged to get married to Kathy, which was over 20 years ago, the person who was one of my who was doing the kind of premarital counseling for me, encouraged me as a man to take leadership in my home. <laughs> and he said, seriously, 
even if it's something as trivial as how the toilet paper rolls, you need to establish how that happens. Whether it's over the top or under the bottom. He seriously told me that. So in that spirit, we weren't married yet. Kathy and I were engaged. She was living in Ohio. I was living here in Bloomington. We had been looking for a house after we got married to move into. So I thought, well, I need a man up. I won't choose toilet paper. I'll choose something else. And in that spirit, I was driving around one weekend when she was not here because she would come to, we'd look at a house together. She'd go back home. And I saw a house that I thought was, could be a good possibility. So I called her and I said, hey, I found this, I saw this house and think this might be the one. And I, here I was, I was playing the toilet paper game. I got, I got a man up here. I got to be the leader. Um, because this person knew Kathy and knew Kathy was a strong personality. He said, you got to be stronger. Okay, I'll man up on this one. Kathy, I found this house, I think it's the one. She goes, I don't like it, I remember it. And I said, but I like it. She said, well, I don't. I remember that house. I don't like it. I don't like this about it, this about it. And I said, but I do. This is on the phone. I'm manning up. All right. She says, but I don't. And I said, well, what, what would you say? I said, what would you say, Kathy, if I said, I think we should buy this? <laughs> I was hoping she'd say, well, I will submit to you. But you know what she said? I'd say you're being a jerk. <laughs> Thus ended my toilet paper experiment, right? And from that moment on, I, after Kath and I talked about it, and I kind of, somebody slapped me to my senses, uh, safe to say I no longer took advice from that person about marriage. But the problem is in marriage, because we always ask this question, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide everything? Shouldn't somebody be in charge? I mean, whether it's toilet paper or houses or what color car to buy or how many kids to have, when to have kids, what to have for dinner, what you wear, what you don't wear, what your kids wear. Shouldn't somebody have the power to decide to make it easier in your marriage than to always have these conversations that become kind of heavy and sometimes cumbersome? Let's just give somebody the medal and say, you're in charge. And the sad thing is, for those of you who want it to be that way, um, the Bible doesn't teach it that way. It's absolutely not at all what the Bible teaches. But it's often what our culture has assumed the Bible teaches or have been told the Bible teaches. And for that matter, every culture throughout history, every single culture, every religion, every religion has found ways for men to oppress women in the name of their religion. All right, so what we're going to talk about, what we've been doing the last few weeks is doing a series called Dangerous Intimacy, Finding the Marriage You've, dream finding, finding the marriage you've Dreamed Of. Now, my own... Uh, kids have told me this, but well, dad, we're not married. This doesn't apply to us. Uh, a lot of you will be married someday. And even then, what I'm talking about here is not simply, here's the behaviors you do to have a successful, successful marriage. It's more about, here's the kind of person the Holy Spirit can transform you to be. So when you're in a situation of relationship, in this case, marriage, you will be the maximum kind of person in terms of uh, bringing wholeness and peace and joy and goodness to that relationship. So if you're not married now, uh, please understand, we're not talking about behaviors for a good marriage, principles for a good marriage. We're talking about how to, how to live life well relationally with the fullness of the Spirit of God inside of you and what that looks like. Now, of course, there's specific things to marriage, and that's what we're talking about here too. And here's the question I've asked the last few weeks, and that's this, what would your marriage be like if you didn't have to struggle anymore with blank? 
If you're not married, you could just say, what would your relationships be like if you didn't have struggle anymore with blank? What is it that's like, I wish we didn't have to talk about this or we don't talk about this because if we did, we'd struggle. So let's do this. Let's go back to the beginning. Because in order to talk about relationships and whose husbands, wives, men, women, how that works, let's go and see what, how God designed things. Because in the beginning, in Genesis chapters 1 and 3, God uh, creates man, creates woman. And I will say this just as, as, a, as an assumption I'm making. And you may not agree with this assumption, but could you suspend judgment just for this morning? My assumption is going to be this that I think the Bible teaches. Uh, God made you distinctly, purposefully, a male or a female. You may have issues with that. You may have friends with issues with that. I'm saying right now, suspend judgment on that. It's a different conversation. But we believe the Bible teaches that God distinctively and purposely made you either male or female. And uh, how he made you, in part, will help you understand who you are and how the fullness of what he wants you to be. So let's start with that. So in the beginning, he did that. Now, it said in the beginning, he created Adam, then he created Eve. And then go to the next slide. He said they were, uh, then the, the, he, the man and woman were together. And he says, then, therefore, that's why a man will leave his father and the mother. He's joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, one whole, peaceful, together, partnership, equal. So God's initial design for marriage was one whole, peaceful, harmonious, together kind of relationship. And I'm saying this because we've got to figure out what was God's design? What did he have on the front of the puzzle box for marriage? And we'll see how it was messed up. So how do we get back to that? So his design was whole, equal, partnership, giving of your gifts and resources in complementary ways to one another for the sake of the well-being of the other, right? So that's what he said. Then he said this, also says that now they were both naked and they felt no shame. Can you imagine what your marriage would be like if there was no shame or no judgment from the other? Please don't tell me that doesn't happen in your marriage. Because it does in mine, I give it out pretty well. What would your marriage be like if there was no shame? No subtle judgmental comments to the other no judgmental thoughts in your heart that you don't express. No condemning, accusation, blaming kind of conversations that every marriage has. All right, what would that be like to have a marriage that's one with no shame? All right? Problem is, Genesis 3, we read that Adam sinned, Eve, Eve sinned, Adam followed. And then the game of blame and shame began. Adam, God tells Adam, Adam, what did you do? And he's like, uh, the woman, the one you gave me, God, she made me do it. Her fault. Eve, what did you do? Uh, it was Satan, the serpent. He made me do it. So we, we started this game that we're all still playing if you're married. And if you're not married, you still play that in your relationships. Blame and shame. My problems are that person's fault. Well, they did it first. They wouldn't have done that. You know, I, I uh, had a conversation this week with one of you who are here this morning, a married person. She was saying, and we'll talk more of this in a few weeks. She said, it's always, it's, it's, it's important for all of us to realize we all come to marriage with baggage, stuff. 
But marriage, since it's a close relationship, all the stuff then comes out. And then we want to blame our stuff on that person. Well, and it's like, wait a minute, you, you carried that in your luggage before you got to marry. I know, but they put it there. They made me that way. I mean, blame and shame. So judgmentalism, condemnation, contempt, subtle, quiet, interior, even expressed, becomes the norm in the marriage because now we're jostling for who's in charge, who's got power because we don't trust anymore, because it's been broken because we violated God. Because there's no trust, there's no harmony, wholeness, oneness, blame and shame becomes the rule of the day. So then the question is, okay, how do we get back to oneness and no shame? How do we get back there? How do we get that kind of marriage back? And that's what we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 5, that Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, when he writes to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, and this is how he talks about not simply how marriages ought to function, but hear me on this. It's how marriages ought to function because that is the pathway back to the God, original design of God. The, the, the goal is back to oneness, partnership, equality, shared trust, harmony, no shame, no judgment, no contempt. That's the goal. The goal is to be back where God designed it to be. This is not how it should be forever and ever now. This is the, the pathway back. It's not, well, this is, this is God's plan B now. Plan A was messed up. Let's go to plan B. All right. Let's read this and we'll highlight a few things. And further, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We talked about that last week. Your mutual submission to one another is because of the awesome, incredible things you see Jesus doing as a leader. And how he submitted to his father in many ways. So out of your reverence to Christ. So if you don't have the spirit of Christ in you, everything I'm saying this morning will make no sense to you. None. Because only when the spirit of Christ is in you can you be this kind of person. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. Next one. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle, any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. The same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. And he concludes, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Incidentally, that statement that Paul is quoting comes from Genesis. And Jesus even referred to that in one of the Gospels, again, affirming God made you distinctly male, distinctly female, and this is how marriage works. A man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So it shows up, not just in the Old Testament, but Jesus says it, shows up in the letters later, in the letters to the churches from Paul and others. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. There's the word one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right. Now, let's go back, go to the next slide there. Again, the overarching phrase over all of this is from uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, or 5, 21. It starts all this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the umbrella over me. That's the umbrella over my wife. 
submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submission is this sense of I, I voluntarily give myself for the well-being of the other. It's not something that somebody forces me to do. The biblical submission does not, I don't tell my wife, submit to me. That's an improper use of how that works. She chooses to submit herself to me. I choose voluntarily on my own will to submit myself to her. Out of my awareness my, and her awareness of the way Jesus himself lived his life in submission and service to the body of Christ. So he's saying, do what you see Jesus doing. That's what this is saying here. Do what you see Jesus doing. Now, let's go to a couple different scenes. We did some of this last week. This is a, a couple of different things. This is a picture of, uh, from, I'm not sure what movie it is. It might have been Mel Gibson's movie. I can't remember which one. Of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, it was the night he was betrayed. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested, tortured, brutalized, died, three days later resurrected. But in this prayer, what he says to the Father is, you can do all things, God. I love if there... And then he says, take this cup from me. I wish there was a plan B. He's being human and expressing his desire to God. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, Father, but your will be done. It's a strong, sacrificial submission to the will of the Father. He's, he's expressing his desire. He's saying, whatever you want. But here's what I want. And I want you to hear me on this, God. Because even in Philippians, talk about Jesus submitting himself to the Father. When he gave up his, the, the powers of his divinity and became human like us, he humbled himself, what the Bible says. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if this is the kind of submission that is modeling Jesus, and here's where we're going to go to what submission specifically says to women. How could, it, how could it or should it, men or women, be demeaning to women if they submit? Because the submission Jesus did shows us a strong, sacrificial submission. So when Paul says, this means submit to your husband's Lord. Now that doesn't mean, hear me on this. I'm not saying my wife is on her knees like Christ in the garden saying, whatever you want, Matt, is yours. She's saying that to God. She's submitting herself to God, but understanding my role in her life as her husband. Hear me on that. She's not saying to me, oh, here's what I want, but whatever you want, Matt, is what we'll do. That's not biblical. She's submitting herself to God entrusting herself, in a sense, with my leadership. Because, you know, it says, for the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ the head of the church. Now think about that word head for a second. In our culture, what we tend to think is, well, if you're the head of something, you're the boss. I mean, is Jesus the boss of the church? Oh, he's in charge. Is Jesus in charge of the church? We, we kind of think weird about leadership. So we read the word head, and we think boss in charge. He gets what he wants. He calls the shots. Is that how Jesus saw his life? Hey, I'm in charge here, guys. I call the shots. You do what I say you do. Well, sure, he was the leader, but Jesus flipped leaderships upside down. Because the disciples, were they were jostling for, well, okay, if he's the first, if Jesus is in charge, Jesus, I want, can I be number two? Some of the disciples, Jesus, can we be number two and three? Can we sit here and here? Because we want to be 
second in charge. And you know what Jesus said to them? Because he flipped leadership upside down. He said, this culture, these religious leaders, they lord their authority over you. That's how the world sees leadership. You are in charge. You are entitled to make the decisions you want. They lord it over you. And then what did Jesus say? Not so with you. If you want to be a leader, you are the servant of all and a slave to them. So even in this passage, when it says women are to submit to their husbands, husbands are the head of the wife, yes, it's clear there that there is some unique role of leadership the husband has, but please don't hear it in the context of boss in charge or in command. Because that's how Jesus saw his role. He was not the boss in charge or in command. He was the leader who used his strength for the well-being of those he served, but he had a clear sense of what he was supposed to be doing because he was listening to the Father. So when, we, when, you, when you see... Uh, skip back for a second here. So when you see this passage about wives submitting to your husbands, it is not... Let me say let me a couple extremes here. Here's, here's the middle. Strong sacrificial submission. And I'll say this, sometimes my wife's most submissive moments are when she disagrees with me the most intensely. Let me say that again. Her most submissive moments, her most sacrificially submissive moments are when she disagrees with me the most intensely. It does not mean on one extreme, I'm not, you don't want a wife, the Bible doesn't teach us that a wife is supposed to be clingy and needy and barefoot and pregnant. Just submit to whatever the master says of the house. The other extreme, though, that women often take is they take what I'll just call, and I think what Scripture would, kind of the dominant extreme. You know, who wears the pants in that family, we often say, when we see that to the extreme. But Scripture is neither talking about women that are weak and needy and barefoot and pregnant, and it's not talking about women who have to man up because they feel like the culture tells them to man up and be dominant. We're talking about women who are strong, Competent, decisive, gifted, intelligent, many times more so than their husband is in those, in those areas. My wife is more decisive than I am. All right, doesn't mean she's less decisive, less leadership gifted. All right, what it means is this is where God wants a woman, as we journey back to wholeness and oneness and unity together, this is the way in which God has set it up. So now, now I'll go to the next part. Here's another example. We talked about this last week, but I'll say it again. This is Jesus, the same night, previous, this is, you know, if you're back up the movie a couple hours, he's washing the disciples' feet. And if you know in that culture, that was reserved only for the lowliest of servants. Feet were dirty, and yes, in those days, feet were stinky. Not a great thing, but Jesus did the unthinkable And the Bible actually says in John 13, when he did this, he was showing the disciples the full extent of his love for them. He was washing their feet. So this is a strong, sacrificial love. Remember God's words to the wife is, submit to your husbands, strong, sacrificial submission. Husbands, love your wives. Strong, sacrificial love. Now again, in our culture... This almost doesn't seem like love. It seems like kind of some demeaning kind of, I'm going to appease this person to get my way. But then, so let's go to the next, go to the phrases associated with. Because we're trying to be like Jesus. The woman plays the, plays the Jesus role in becoming like Jesus in strong sacrificial submission. The man plays the Jesus role 
strong sacrificial love. Says, husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, yeah. If somebody knocked on my door at midnight tonight and was going to kill my wife and kids, and I know, kill me first. Yeah, most of us would probably, most men, yeah, okay, that's probably not going to happen for most of us, right? I would hope to think that most of you men who are married would do that for your wives. Yes, I'd give my life up for. But I, this is talking about life of, this is what I, this is my agenda. Am I willing to give up my agenda for my wife's agenda at times? It's those daily things. There was something recently where my wife, uh, I kind of made a pronouncement about what our family was going to do without really checking about with my wife on something. And she challenged me on that. And I, since I wrote the book on defensiveness, I uh, defensive back. Is that a verb? I defensive back. All right. Um, and then there was a point where I really sensed God was saying, can you, can you give this up? For her sake, because she's got wisdom, intelligence, discernment too. <laughs> but if you're married, you know this. But then I was already too deep into the argument. If I pulled out then, it'd be bad. I had to keep going, right? Because you don't know when to pull out. Uh, but over time, I realized, you know what? She has wisdom, discernment, and intelligence about this. And I think she's right. So am I willing to give up my agenda for her? So put in the word agenda men for life. I'm not saying take off, I'm not saying shirk responsibility because what men do, the two extremes of men, and if you're a husband, you've been in both these places, extreme number one of men is you take on this tough guy demeanor, macho, I'm in charge here. We're rolling the toilet paper this way. Tomorrow we'll do it that way. Odd days we'll do it both ways, whatever. That's I'm in charge. The other extreme of men, which we also, all we, we all do, I don't think we're all just in one, the other extreme is, I'll just call it the abdicator. Um, I, I, why don't you just decide, dear, on this? Because really what I'm saying is, I don't want the responsibility of making a wrong decision. So why don't you take the burden? The picture I have in my mind at times is if, God has put my wife and I in front of this big, open, dark cave that we have to go into. We've got to figure something out. And I, being the strong, tough man I am, will sometimes be, um, Kathy, why don't you go first and see what's in there? Because you know, figure it out and then I'll... No, that's, that's, what I'm, that's abdicating. That's abdicating. That's saying, um, I don't want the burden. I don't want to have to deal with the chaos of the unknown. So Kathy, why don't you start the conversation? And I'll jump in. And, and please hear me. I do that way more than I wish I did. And my guess if you're married, you do that too. It's one of these things, an area of chaos in your marriage. Not like chaos, like capital C, but just, I don't know what to do about this or this. Or We've really got to have this conversation about something we don't know how it's going to end. Are you going to, men, are you going to push your wife in there and kind of bump her in? You go in there first, see what's... Right? Or, or you're going to be like the tough guy who just stands at the entrance of the cave and say, you know what, I can't see what's in there, but this is what we're going to do. No, you, you go in there with her. As Christ loved the church, and he, you give up your agenda for her. Doesn't mean you always let her have her way. Or your, When people tell me, well, it's my wife's turn to make the decision this time, that's not a biblical model. 
The biblical model is we make a decision. And sometimes if there's a, you might say, well, what happens if there's, a, if you're at log jams? Well, then I do believe that it's my responsibility to make the decision that I think God wants us to make for us. And it may mean I don't get what I want. It may mean I have to make a decision against my agenda because it's what God wants. But I have to hear my wife, hear her wisdom, intelligence, and her understanding. Because again, the goal is we want to get back to where there's an equality of how we understand our marriage. Shared responsibility, shared leadership, but the way back, God has outlined this is the structure for the way back. Actually tells us in heaven there is not even marriage anyway. But we're, this, is, this is the way back for both her and I to become fully alive and redeemed like we're meant to be fully, full, fully shared partners, fully shared leaders, fully shared in our marriage. And after 22, I think, years of marriage, I have to think about that, we've made a few strides in that direction. But more stumbles I've made than strides. Now, again, here's the goal. The goal is be back oneness and no shame. So I've said this before, if there's contempt in your marriage, if there's condemnation in your marriage, judgment toward the other, or just issues of shame you don't talk about, then it's not, it's not, that's not bad. It's bad if you're willing to stay there. So men, maybe the, there's probably ways, I'm sure there's ways that God will be asking you to take a step into chaos toward redemption, toward partnership, toward oneness and harmony, but it starts with some of those little conversations that you know and I know we'd rather not have. We wish it would just take care of itself. It's kind of like me and the check engine light in my car. I'm assuming if I ignore it, it'll go away. And the problem will take care of itself. Well, that's not going to happen. I mean, if I knew how to disengage all these check engine lights in my car, I would because I just don't want to know. Then if something goes wrong, it's like, well, imagine that. What happened? Who knows what happened, you know? But uh, let's be honest, men. Women too, but I'll just speak to the men. We do ignore those check engine lights in our marriage. And we're afraid to go there because we're not sure what we're going to get back. Because we, uh, in a word, this is a really deep theological word, we're wimps sometimes. <laughs> we don't want to push through on that. Because, but we, when you do, it will stretch you and God will teach you more about what it means to submit to your wife by loving her well and being the head that you're supposed to be to bring wholeness back to your marriage. Not tough, not wimpy, but strong. Two questions to end with. First one's here from women. Wives, how would you rate yourself in submitting to your husband as to the Lord? And husbands, don't get a score sheet out and write it down and pass it to your wife. We're not asking for that. I'm asking you women how would you rate yourself? How would Jesus say you're doing? Now, again, this isn't saying, well, whatever my husband wants, I'm going to let him have. No, it's not saying that. But it does say in the end of this passage, the wife should show respect to her husband. Are there ways, wives, in which your husband is feeling disrespected, especially in public? or even in private. And again, respect doesn't mean, yes, master. Respect is a, spirit, a tone, a, a spirit of, of honor. Even the whole idea that talks about women honoring their husbands. Um, what would Jesus be asking you to do differently to grow in that area of your life, in your marriage? 
and it may have, this is your responsibility. It's not your husband's responsibility. You can't say, well, if my husband changed, I could do better at this. That's not how the Bible teaches this. You have to open yourself up to the spirit of Jesus who will then show you how to be more full of Jesus so you can play the Jesus role in your marriage, sacrificial submission, strong. And please hear me again. I'm not saying it's, a, it's, it's it, you don't become passive and left. Matter of fact, you may have to become a little more active and vocal. Some, some women may need to become more active and vocal to be strongly, sacrificially submissive. All right, next question. Husbands, how would you rate yourself in loving your wife as Christ loves the church? That's the command that Paul gives. Notice I didn't say, how would you rate yourself in being the head of your home? Because that's not the charge Paul gives to men. He says, your charge is you love your wife as Christ loves the church. Are you cherishing your wife? That's another biblical phrase. It says, husbands, love your wives in another part of the New Testament and don't be harsh with her. The opposite of harsh is cherish. Are you cherishing your wife? I don't mean treat her like a little tin cup that, you know, fine china is going to break, but are you treating her in a cherishing way? Because I think the, when Scripture says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them, that's because... Paul knew, who wrote that in Colossians, I think it was, he knew the tendency of men is we can be harsh with our wives. There's probably not a man here that if I said, How, do, you have a, do you have an anger problem? I think most men would have to say, if we're honest, uh, yeah, to some degree I do. And if you don't, then I don't know, maybe I need to let you teach next week. <laughs> okay, but out of that kind of this drivenness we have as men, which is sometimes a good part of who we are, the flip side of that is, if I don't get my way, then I'm going to get mad. Are you cherishing your wife or are you being harsh with her? How would Jesus say you're doing with this? Are you willing to ask Jesus, how, Jesus, how, how, how am I doing? Because Jesus is the model for loving others sacrificially. Is Jesus asking you husbands to do anything differently <coughs> towards your wife? Is there some issue right now that you're at log jams about or whatever that you maybe sense God's been saying, you know, you really need to love her in this way. You need to give up your life for her, give up your agenda. Stop being stubborn. He may be saying that to you. Are you listening to him? Are you willing to do what Jesus asked you to do? Now, some, some of you might say, let me just leave it on this for a second. Okay, but why did God make the man have this role and the woman have this role? And the answer is ultimately, we don't really know. But can I tell you, when you look at those, the scenes of submission of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the scenes of loving, uh, that I said the model for men was Jesus washing feet, the model for women was Jesus' submission. Do you notice they happened on the same night and both of those ended in death? They gave their life up, Jesus gave his life up, and then they ended in resurrection. So... Which would you rather be? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out to God or Jesus washing feet knowing this was coming next? They both end in giving up your life for the sake of resurrection. So if, if, if you're like, I wish I wouldn't have been born a man, I wish I would have been born a woman, I, I don't like the responsibilities, that's where your stretch beyond comfort is. Because God wants you to, he wants you men, whether you're married or not, to be fully the male that he made you to be, that doesn't mean 
macho rock climbing, skeet shooting, whatever. It means you use the strength that God has given you for the well-being of others in your life. It has nothing to do with physical strength or, you know, whether or not you take a shower every day or whatever. All it has to do with the strength you have in your spirit that God's made in men. Are you using that for the well-being of others or are you using it selfishly? And for women, are you using your discernment, your nurturing nature? And again, I'm not saying all women are moms, but the women have an internal sense of discernment and awareness of things that men don't have. That's a very strong thing. Are you using that for the well-being of others in your life? Not just your husband or your wife, but are you using your giftedness for the well-being of others? And the more you understand how God made you, uh, then you'll stop running and fighting God on some of those things. Most of my fights with God has been... I'd rather be an abdicator. I'd rather be a macho man. But I, I don't know what this, map this out for me. I don't know what this means. Because see, there's, no, there's no, nothing in the Bible that says, okay, this is how a marriage ought to work. Husbands take out the trash, do the money and do this. Women do the laundry and do this. We'd love to have it mapped out that way. It is not. Now, typically, more often men are challenged for leadership and protection of the home in Scripture. More often, women are challenged and, and encouraged to nurture and take care of children in the home, but it's not exclusively, it's not behaviors outlined in Scripture. So you might say, well, can you give me a better roadmap? And the answer is no. The roadmap is do whatever the Spirit of Jesus tells you to do. And he's already told men to love your wives as Christ of the church. He's told women to strongly sacrifice and submit to their husbands. And then you've got to figure out what the Spirit of God, God will not tell you exactly what behaviors to do. And that's what we love about God. And sometimes, frankly, we hate about God because we want to know, just tell me what to do. And he's like, well, just this relationship. Listen to me. Two more slides. Next one. Because you can't act like Jesus unless you have the spirit of Jesus. You cannot pretend to be Jesus to your spouse. The whole thing, some of you are probably too young to remember this. Maybe it'll come back. The, what would Jesus do bracelets people had? WWJD. Good intention, but the idea is, well, okay, uh, my wife and I are having a fight right now. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I don't know. The question is not what would Jesus do. The question is, are you open to the spirit of Jesus in you so you become the kind of person who will naturally do what Jesus would do if he was living your life in your situation? That's what discipleship is. How would Jesus live your life if he were you as a man or a woman? How would he live your life? How would he deal with that situation? How would he deal with that conflict in your marriage with your roommate, with your mom and dad? How would Jesus do that if he were you? And that only happens if his spirit is in you. You can't kind of guess. You can't kind of, I mean, I can watch LeBron James all I want and try to mimic his behaviors in the court, but you will not pay me anything to play basketball. If his spirit and his body were in me, you might pay me something to play basketball. So I can look and try to mimic Jesus all I want, but unless his spirit and his body are in me, I will not be Jesus to my wife. I cannot be. So then it all goes back to this. Am I open to Jesus? And this is, um, you can't act like Jesus unless you have the spirit of Jesus. And then we'll close this last slide here. This last number of weeks. Because you might say, well, how do I do that? And Here's the prayer that we've, I've been asking you to pray for your spouses, pray for yourselves. So Paul's prayer in Ephesians is that we would all experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. 
You pray for yourself that way, God. I want to experience the love of Christ in my life. And I want to be full of the life and power that comes from God. And then you say, God, for my wife, or for my husband, God, I want them to experience the, 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 the love of Christ fully. Although it's way too big to understand. But God, I want them, I want Kathy to be filled with the life and power that comes from God. And then I, then I can figure out what my, my role is as the husband. I do whatever I can do to make this a reality in my wife's life. And that doesn't sound like being in charge, does it? That sounds like I'm supposed to be a sacrificial servant who is willing to go first into chaos to bring this about for her and for me, for our family and for our marriage. This, this prayer is for anybody whether you're married or not, and that's our prayer for all of us, that we'd be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Let me pray. Um, Jesus, we, uh, in saying that uh, we want to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus, I'm not trying to minimize sometimes the struggles in our marriages, and it's not just as, it's maybe not as simple as just some, you know, magic wand you wave over us and all of a sudden we're changed, because it's hard. Because it caused, primarily, God, because it's hard for us to give in, to submit to you. Because we wrestle with trusting you, even though we should and we can, but we still have these uh, kind of fibers in our hearts that are hard to break. So, God, would you break those fibers in our hearts, the fibers of the self-life that are really about trying to preserve our agendas because we think we know how to live life but we really know that we trust the way of Jesus, which is the way of a servant, which is the way of sacrifice, which is the way of death and resurrection. So for the marriages here today that are any degree of unity, oneness, or significant degrees of brokenness and shame and pain, God, we know you bring healing. And that's our prayer, that's our desire, that you would begin that healing process in the hearts of the men and the women, whether they're husbands or wives or not, but in all of us, to heal us, to become fully who you made us to be. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we do communion every